Welcome to the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today is my pleasure to welcome Rob Wolf as my guest. Now, Rob is one of these amazing people who has expertise in so many different areas, and I think you're going to see that in our talk today. We cover politics. We cover the biology and chemistry of food science. We cover the emotions and the psychology of it. And of course, we cover sort of how to view these things from a different perspective. Because one of Rob's messages that I think is so important is we shouldn't get bogged down all the times in the specifics, whether it's genetics or whether it's number of carbs or whether it's we're paleo or a keto, but sort of view it from a health perspective and make it an individualized approach, specifically when it comes to metabolic health and carb flexibility. Uh, so I really hope you take away some of Rob's perspectives, and you're able to incorporate that into your life to say, okay, how does this fit into my bigger picture of health? Now, Rob is a, a very prolific author with The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. He's working on two new books, which we're going to hear a little bit about at the end, and I can't wait for those to come out. And then, of course, he's got a number of videos on YouTube and his website, robwolf.com. So I really hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did about this just whirlwind of different topics and the perspective from Rob Wolf. And if you want to see more, you can see us at dietdoctor.com, where you can see the full transcript and, of course, all our other interviews. So thanks and enjoy this episode. Rob Wolf, welcome to the Diet Doctor Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Huge honor to be here. Yeah, well, Rob Wolf takes on a lot of different meanings when people think of who Rob Wolf is. So I want to start with who really is Rob Wolf? Because sometimes when you listen to you speak, you can sound like you are an anthropological PhD, or you can sound like you're a biochemistry PhD, or you could sound like you are a functional medicine practitioner with years of experience, or you're the CrossFit expert. And you you seem to you seem to branch across so many different disciplines. Like who's Rob Wolf? How'd you get to this point of of having so much expertise. Oh, man. Uh, one, thank you. Uh, it, it's some good luck and I guess some hard work. So I stumbled on this kind of paleo diet concept in 1998 as part of a, a health crisis that I had. And it was kind of the last ditch, you know, roll of the dice to, to try to deal with the ulcerative colitis that I was dealing with. But my mother had been diagnosed with uh, celiac disease and a, a whole complex of interrelated autoimmune conditions, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's. And now uh, when we kind of look back, like that's super common. We see that all the time where people have these complexes of autoimmune conditions. But at the time it was kind of this novel thing, but her rheumatologist had determined that she was reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy. And when she told me this at the time, I was a very sick vegan. And I, I, again, the ulcerative colitis problem and whatnot, and I, I sat there thinking, I'm like, okay, so she can't eat grains, legumes, and dairy. What on earth do you eat if you don't eat that? You know, I mean, the dairy wasn't an issue for me at the time because the the vegan shtick, but I was like, grains, legumes, and dairy, man, that's like agriculture. What did we eat before agriculture? And I was like, oh, the, the caveman, like paleolithic, paleolithic diet. So this is 1998, and it, literally it was this stream of consciousness, and I, I had heard this term paleolithic diet, I went into the house, turned on the computer, waited for it to boot up and do it, its thing. And then there was a new search engine out called Google. And into Google, I put the term Paleolithic diet. And I found a lot of material from this guy, Arthur Devaney, and then less material from a guy, Lauren Cordain. 
And I started interacting with both these guys. I ended up uh, shaking Lauren down for a research fellowship and spent some time in Fort Collins. And so I was right at the beginning of that scene. And then I, I've always been interested in kind of the strength and conditioning world. And in 2000, 2001, when I was poking around online, I found this really weird workout called CrossFit. And they were referencing the low-carb diets and Paleolithic diets at a time when no, I mean, nobody talked about this stuff. Yeah, you this know, was back in 2001. 2000, 2001, yeah. yeah. So I ended up co-founding the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world and worked with CrossFit HQ for a number of years. And so I've been really lucky to be at, at kind of the ground floor level of a lot of these, uh, I guess, kind of movements that have really arguably kind of changed the world that we live in in a lot of ways. So very... Yeah fortunate in that regard. And then I, I don't know why, but at a reasonably young age, like in my early twenties, I kind of sat down and I, I thought, what are these like big picture governing, you know, concepts that, that help you understand the world? And I, I, for myself, I kind of boiled it down to economics, um, evolution and what, what I would call like thermodynamics, you know, I mean, basically physics, but really thermodynamics because of like the energy inputs and outputs, like, if, if someone says, hey, ethanol is a great fuel source, you know, for, for cars, I'd say, okay, well, do you get more energy out of it than you put into it? And they say, no. Then I'm like, okay, then it's not a good fuel source, you, you know? And so if you're able to run things through some basic economics, you know, like supply and demand and, and um, you know, efficient market theory and some stuff like that, like it really... Uh, uh, and things like moral hazard, like uh, if you're going to set up a, a safety net for people, make sure it doesn't turn into a noose that keeps them trapped there for multiple generations. Like there's some there's some basic economic stuff, and then using this evolutionary template, it, it doesn't answer all the questions, but it helps you ask some really good questions about you know human health, ranging from psychology to movement to our circadian biology. Like it really gives you kind of a an advantage. And so I'm not a particularly smart guy, but I've got kind of an operating system that I think gives me a, a disproportionate advantage when I look out at the world and I try to figure out what's going on in that. And so it led me to some things like functional medicine, like CrossFit, like this paleo low carb type approach. And so I've been really lucky in that some of my early mentors helped me form that kind of worldview based in economics, evolution, and thermodynamics, and then also have just been kind of the right place, the right time, and then worked really hard with some of these these concepts. Yeah, that's a great way you describe it about the, the different modalities, because you do pull from so many different areas, and I think that really helps your perspective, because no matter how much people like to put things in buckets and put people in buckets, you sort of defy that and say, hang on, we're not all in buckets. So you're initially known as the paleo guy because your paleo solution book. And then you sort of kind of became known as the keto guy because right. then you're talking more about keto. But really, it sounds like your message is you don't have to be paleo. You don't have to be keto. You have to apply the principles for a healthy lifestyle. Right. Yeah. Right. And folks forget that in my, uh, in my paleo book, my recommendation for the first three months was between 30 and 50 grams of carbs and then start tinkering with reintroduction and whatnot. And so, it, it, you know, even then, like the, the funny thing is my North Star has really always been the low carb side of this story, but using the paleo orientation to think about broader picture things like gut health, circadian biology, um, immunogenic foods. And so that's where the, the maybe paleo ancestral health template has been really valuable for me in trying to figure out, you know, kind of some logic trees for trying to help folks. 
Right. And, yeah. and that makes a lot of sense. So when, when you're talking about um, people trying to be healthier and the, the, the challenges they overcome, so I think that's where it sort of leads to the Wired to Eat book that you yes. wrote. And, yeah. and that's another part of your message that's so important, that it's, you know, that the types of food you want to eat is important, right? Trying to define your macros, trying to stay away from the unhealthy foods, you know, go towards the healthier ancestral type foods. But the society we're in is sort of stacking the decks, deck against us Absolutely. and it's making it much more challenging. And that was sort of like the whole, the take home behind Wired to Eat. So what led you down that path to to say, okay, let's take a let's take a detour from the type of foods to what's going on emotionally, what's going on intellectually that that's, that's keeping us from achieving our health. Right. It, you know, in the first book, The Paleo Solution, I had maybe a paragraph related to the neuroregulation of appetite. And... I made mention to the notion that like adipinopectin and, and leptin and ghrelin, these things regulate our appetite. And if we eat in a certain way, then it can improve our satiety and make it easier for us to be successful. But it was really like an aside. So those are the hormones, just for definition, those are the hormones that sort of regulate, say your body's hungry or your body's yeah. full. And so the how those are regulated by different factors. Yes, okay. yeah, yeah, including sleep and exercise and yeah. all, all kinds of stuff. Your gut microbiome, you know, it influences these, these, uh, these things. But then over the course of time, you know, there's been this kind of macronutrient war, uh, is it high carb, is it low carb? Well, we have the Katavans, they live really well and, and eat tons of carbs. Well, I try to eat that way and I feel terrible and my blood yeah. lipids go sideways and it doesn't matter if it's sweet potatoes or rice or what have you. So what's happening there? And so over the course of time, I, I think putting some of this uh, uh, ideas around metabolic flexibility and some individualized medicine, uh, some folks at the Weizmann Institute uh, did a really fascinating bit of research uh, that I believe was published in 2016. Uh, they took 800 people, put uh, continuous glucose monitors on them, did a full gut microbiome screening, genetic testing, full lipidology. Then they started feeding these folks different meals. And what they found was there was massive difference from person to person and even for a single individual White rice might not be a big deal, but a banana would be. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, sometimes producing nearly diabetic blood sugar levels after a banana versus a cookie. So there was just this massive individual variation, both in the amounts and types of carbohydrate that people respond favorably to. And then, uh, again, using this kind of ancestral health template, whether uh, non-Westernized cultures eat a lot of carbs or don't, the little bit of data that we have on them providing like oral glucose tolerance tests, they look amazing. The, and these people tend to be small, which would skew the oral glucose tolerance test unfavorably, you know, for them because there's just less volume to dilute the, the glucose in. But for these non-Westernized populations that have been tested, a, a high blood sugar number at hours one and two was 100, 105, whereas we're not really that concerned until we start getting north of like 160. Right, and shows how the just the society and the norm can change so much. Yes, yeah. you know, and, and uh, so what, what it kind of directed me to was a couple of different factors. It was one, almost nobody, even though you could maybe make an argument because of amylase gene frequency and all this different stuff that maybe humans should be able to eat a significant amount of carbs. And maybe carbs played a pretty significant role in ancestral human uh, living, 
but today we just don't tolerate it that well, like in general. Some people do, but most people don't. And then if you apply a standard that is consistent across the board with non-Westernized populations of what constitutes healthy blood sugars, then it, you're forced to either eat very small amounts of carbs or very infrequently or immediately post-exercise, or, you know, it, it starts ordering some stuff out. And uh, what we found is that if we tighten those parameters with an eye towards the neuroregulation of appetite so that, you know, people could spontaneously reduce or maintain caloric in, intake at healthy levels, and uh, that was driven in large part by finding the amounts and types of carbohydrate that kept them within, you know, pretty tight blood sugar regulation because I think that that is the ancestral norm. These, these huge excursions in blood sugar were not normal. And what we look at as benign, I think, is anything but. And that it, it's actually much, much lower in magnitude and duration that, that is not injurious. Once you start running everything through that, then that was kind of the, the framework for Wired to Eat. And then it, you know, so it helped educate people on maybe that background information. And then I think pretty practically help people to walk through, you know, uh, getting to a spot that they, they could find a healthy, healthy place in that. So let's talk about first that for a second because this metabolic flexibility is is a big topic that comes mm -hmm. up. You know, when you're when you're treating diabetes, when you're treating insulin resistance, you really have to be pretty strict about avoiding carbohydrates. But people always ask, is this a forever thing? Is there some point where I can start to introduce carbs in a healthy manner? And that's where this carb challenge mm -hmm. or this concept of metabolic flexibility comes in. So what kind of advice can you give to people on ways to determine if you're at that point or how to monitor yourself to say, okay, if I try some carbs, am I at a point where I can do this in a healthy manner? Yeah. It, in general, if folks uh, get to a reasonable level of leanness, that's probably a, a decent indicator that they, they may be more metabolically flexible. Uh, we can do some testing like a LPIR score, lipoprotein insulin resistance score, which is interesting. It does everything that like the craft patterns does, but without being hooked up to a glucose clamp for like six hours at a, at a shot. And so if your LPIR score looks good, which good would for me would be like 40 or, or less, um, then we can get in and start kind of kicking the tires on, on how folks do with carbs and, uh, usually start with about a 50 gram amount. If people have been eating historically pretty low carb, then I would recommend just kind of titrating some carbs in so that if there's any physiological insulin resistance in the background, uh, that, that's been kind of sparing glucose for, you know, must have resources, then we can kind of shift things around, but we just kind of test things and see how folks look, feel, and perform, see how their blood glucose responds. And there's just kind of a reality that some people re will regain significant headroom with regards to metabolic flexibility and other people will not. I've been eating approximately ketogenic, periketogenic for 20 years now, and I have tried everything under the sun. And it, it honestly, it's gotten better. And uh, ironically, like I started using some uh, low-dose um, uh, loperamide, the, uh, uh, you know, anti-diarrheal drug almost a year ago. And that actually, like it fixed, like maybe the remaining five or 10% of kind of my IBS stuff that I've, I've had. And it, 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 I can eat a little bit more carbs now, you know, it probably pop, popped it up 10, 15 grams per meal where my blood glucose looks good. And, uh, it, it's, uh, and I know it's crazy. Like people are like, oh my God, you know, like, uh, it, 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 hemolytic E. coli and, and all this stuff. So I, if I get food poisoning, I, I actually discontinue it then, okay. but it, it's, um, 
I've done everything you can imagine. And like, if I do a really hard jujitsu session, if I lift weights pretty hard, if I do something like CrossFit, I can throw some carbs in the backside of that. It's unclear whether to what degree that really does anything favorable for me because I actually like kind of fattier, more protein foods at this point anyway. So, right. it, and there's like stevia sweetened sugar, uh, you know, sugar-free chocolate bars at this point. So I'm kind of like, hey, I, I, I just don't need that other stuff. But so, what numbers do you shoot for? Because you mentioned the Katavans and the more ancestral type communities that their blood sugar is 100 even after they eat carbs. And in our society, we're talking about 140, 160. So, yeah. what do you use as your guide, your benchmark? I, I think about 115. Like you don't want to see an excursion above that at, at one hour, two hours, at 30 minutes. Like we'd like to see the whole curve under that that 115 yeah. nanograms. Yeah. Yeah, which is really low. Yeah. And, but it, it, interestingly, my wife, who is 40 pounds lighter than I am, um, she and I will eat the same amount of rice. Like we did a, a lot of testing around this and posted on social media. We'll eat the same amount of rice and she will top off at maybe 120. I mean, occasionally she'll pop up to 120. Mine will be 190, 195. And I have blurry vision. I feel horrible. My mouth is dry. She's like, no difference. And you know what's so interesting about that? She has no like keto flu. She doesn't hit a wall going low carb. She was a 17th place uh, uh, CrossFit Games competitor. What I've noticed is people that are legitimately what I think is metabolically flexible, there's no wall that they hit going into ketosis. Whereas folks like me that have had some kind of metabolic breakage at, at some point, if I get into a, a thing where I'm doing some experimenting and I'm a little more carb fueled and then I go back into a ketogenic state, it's kind of a brick wall. Like I've got to mm. be totally on point with my electrolytes. I've got a 30 day period where my, my VO2 max is down, like my, my uh, work output is down. Whereas Nikki, she'll go in, out, doesn't matter. And she barely, and she doesn't really notice a cognitive boost being in ketosis, whereas I really do. So I think historically, humans went in and out of ketosis all the time. And because they were metabolically flexible, it didn't really matter because it wasn't like hitting a brick wall when they first did it. But I think when you have people that their metabolisms over their lifetime potentially has been habituated to just carbohydrate intake, um, it's a really gnarly transition, but sometimes it's the only, um, therapeutic intervention we can do that gets blood sugars into reasonable levels that drops like the total inflammasome load and, and, you know, makes things generally look much better and the person feels better. You guys are, are like the perfect couple to highlight the difference, the it, individual It's really variation. cool. It really yeah. is cool. If we were both identical in that regard, like it be wouldn't really boring. be that interesting of a story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it was a really yeah. compelling story. And even like uh, some people like Joe Rogan, like they were really following that and were really kind of mm. jaw dropped that there was that big right. of a difference between us. Yeah. yeah. So if people are interested, I recommend they go, they go onto your YouTube page because I know you, you, you yep. uh, chronicled it like every that. single day yeah. of, of that seven day challenge and more. So yeah, yeah. that was really interesting. So you've brought up exercise a few times. So uh, I think that's an important concept too, about the carb use before and after exercise. Cause I remember you saying you've broken many a good man by trying yeah. to make him go low carb or man and woman, I, I presume with jujitsu training and, you know, work, you work a lot with mixed martial artists. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've broken many a person by having them go low carb. Tell us what you mean about that. So I think some of these highly glycolytic sports like CrossFit, boxing, jujitsu, um, don't really lend themselves well to a, a like purely ketogenic diet by, by people um, sticking in that like 30 to 50 grams a day level. 
but this also reflects kind of my Dunning-Kruger, you know, you, my time done in Dunning-Kruger land, you know, like Mount Stupid, where you think you've got it all figured out, and then you actually start learning how little you know. And what I've learned over time is someone who is fat adapted may eat 150, 200 grams of carbs a day, and they're still at a therapeutic ketogenic level, but they're also providing enough carbs. And it, it, this is a guess. So I'm, I'm really guessing here because when we look at muscle biopsies of people that are keto adapted, the, the muscles replete glycogen pretty well, but the liver doesn't. You know, like that's kind of the, the, you know, the reason why we end up in ketosis. And I suspect that there's a central governor element, a, a piece in our brain that senses our energy needs and energy availability. And what I've noticed is just adding 10, 20 grams of quick acting carbs, like, like doing uh, uh, the glucose tablets for diabetics. If I do that, if I have athletes do that immediately before a session, what, what's interesting is their total blood glucose spike do, from the session is lower. And I think that's because they get less of an adrenal cortical response trying to dump glucose out of an already glycogen depleted liver. And so I think part of where I broke folks, a, a big piece was I wasn't attending to their electrolytes appropriately. They needed far more electrolytes. That was a piece I didn't do. But then also I was overly strict about what ketosis was. And the reality is someone, if someone is vegan and eating a 90% carbohydrate diet, but they're doing a, a Ironman triathlon event, they're producing ketones. Like, you know, they, they may swear up and down that they're not, but they absolutely are because the body is trying by hook or by crook to get, you know, energy substrate any way it can. And one of the ways that it will do that is by producing ketones. So a, a piece that I didn't uh, appreciate was electrolytes. Another piece was that ketosis can mean a lot of different things depending on the context and high work output can, can uh, uh, you know, change the, the carbohydrate tolerance significantly. And then also appreciating that some peri-workout uh, carbohydrate, particularly glucose, may actually alleviate a lot of that glucocorticoid ping that we get. We see it really prominently in type 1 diabetics, mm -hmm. you know, where they'll do a hard workout and their blood glucose may go into the 200s. And so then you have to figure out a strategy of do we do some slow acting, you know, insulin before and, you know, there's a whole mitigating strategy there. But over the course of time, I've just recognized that we can cycle carbs a little bit. So on harder training days, we'll do more, particularly pre and post workout. Um, we'll do uh, uh, peri-workout nutrition, like the targeted ketogenic diet. And so we just do a little bit of fiddling and I've found where you know, where normally say a 170 pound MMA athlete, they may be eating six or 800 grams of carbs a day and they're, they're inflamed and they're six having gut problems. That, that's the standard. I mean, that's what these folks do. Wow. We might get them down to two or 300 grams of carbs and their inflammation is low. And the, you know, when they wake up in the morning, they've got a, a, a decent level of, of keto, uh, ketosis occurring. We might throw some MCT oil in the mix to kind of, you know, goose all that stuff. But being a little bit more flexible on that and really just keeping oriented towards performance and inflammation and recovery. 
and but you know they're they're at a fraction the carbohydrate intake that they you know historically have been right and and reap some benefits consequently so now you're dealing with very high performance athletes with very high performance type activity so for the so-called average joe out there who's going to hit the treadmill hit the elliptical do some resistance training do you think the same concept applies or is there sort of a minimal level of intensity that that you need to worry about adding this extra glucose i think it varies a little bit from person to person like i think some people probably don't need to add peri-workout carbs at all. Uh, I do jujitsu four or five days a week. And I find in general, if I just do 10, 20 grams, if, so what I do, I show up at class and I look and see who's there. If there's a bunch of like 22 year old cops that are, you know, 200 pounds and I'm like, okay, it's going to be one of those days. And it's like 20 grams of carbs because I know that it's going to be a fight for my life. If it's people my size and they're all white belts. And I'm like, I don't even add anything to it because it, it's not going to be a big day for me. So I think you kind of map, you know, what, what the experience is and, and you can play with that. But it, I mean, it's really a nominal amount, you know, that, that, uh, uh, folks get a real benefit from the guys from keto gains. I've learned so much from them. Uh, they will do a little bit of peri-workout carbs, you know, 10, 20, 20 grams is very high. Like they're more like five or 10 grams, just a little bit of a dose right before the, the workout. And it seems to, and again, it's not a muscle glycogen thing. Like people get really spun out about that. I think it's a central governor issue where the brain just senses, oh, there's a little glucose there. We're good. We can, yeah. we can, we can get after it a little bit. Yeah. And what about if you were using food instead? Would you recommend like a handful of berries or you know, would you even go like a cereal or rice or like what, what are the food equivalents you would say for that glucose tab for those who want to have a little, I think a little fruit and probably more like tropical fruit, like the higher glycemic index, faster acting fruit, because you want it to be pretty quick acting. But again, folks can, can play with that, you know? Yeah. And, and again, because ketosis is so damn effective, like it's, it's the most underutilized medical intervention in the world right now. Like it is just such a powerful tool. That's a great comment. But it's so powerful that then people have forgotten, oh, there's this whole world called low carb that it's like 50 to 150 grams of carbs a day, which is incredibly healthy and incredibly beneficial. And people will go in and out of ketosis all the time. So I would really encourage folks to just play with things and, and kind of see how they do because, it, it, again, like ketosis has been so valuable. Like I, I was looking on PubMed, you can look at the uh, the number of citations that have been published over time, and it starts in like the early 1900s, and it's like one or two, one or two, and then around 2000, you start getting a little bit. And last year, there were like 380, like it's gone exponential, and it's because it addresses so many different issues. It's so effective. And unlike paleo, like I kind of look at keto versus paleo, uh, paleo is kind of like uh, the Old Testament and then keto is like the New Testament. It's kind of like, oh, don't worry about all that stuff. Like just do this, you know, just just, <laughs> just get your blood glucose to, to these levels and things are going to be good. And in general, that's pretty accurate. You know, it's just a much simpler intervention. And then if somebody says, what about gluten intolerance? Okay, well, check that. You know, like you can you can tick the box on all the food intolerance stuff very easily, but it's not this whole like crazy, you know, song and dance routine. So it's so effective, but I think that people have gotten a little overly wet or a little paranoid about the the notion that like 100 grams of carbs from whole food sources, fruits and vegetables is probably not a bad idea for a, a lot of people, particularly more active people. So I would play with peri-workout carbs. I would also play with 
you know, just how do you feel reintroducing a little bit of fruit pre or post workout and stuff like that? Like, do you still look, feel and perform as well or better? Do, uh, you know, does your A1C look good? If you get some inflammatory markers, how do those look? How is your digestion? And if all those things are on point, I, I tend to lean towards more latitude in the diet versus less. For those yeah. who are more metabolically healthy and yes. sort of reached a plateau yeah. stage and not in their active treating something like diabetes exactly. or insulin, yep. insulin yep. resistance. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I think that was a good uh, discussion there on exercise because so many people wonder how to handle how to handle glucose around exercise. Yeah. Now, I want to transition a little bit more to more about wired to eat and sort of the, the societal pressures of it's not your fault necessarily. Right? Right. There's so much from a, from a physician standpoint, I can unfortunately say I've spent over a decade sort of subtly saying it's your fault. Right. Right? You, just, right. you just don't have enough willpower. Not that I ever said that, but that's sort of the implied message that you can't stick to this diet. But you have, you've pointed out the, the psychology behind orchestrating packaged foods and processed foods to make it more addictive. And you've talked about the the differences in texture and the differences in, in salt where you just, you're stuffed, you can't eat anymore. Oh, but here comes a change to our right. palate and all of a sudden we can. I mean, was this eye-opening and, and kind of revelation a revelation for you to learn all this or did you sort of suspect it from the beginning? No, it was a big eye-opener yeah. because in my early career, I was a total to people. And <laughs> um, it was kind of like, just do this, you know? And, and yeah. Uh, you know, here's the information, just do it. And, uh, well, my, my kids don't want to eat this way. Make little Jimmy eat. You know, I mean, I, I was so not, um, appreciative of the complexities of like navigating the social environment and all that type of stuff. And really did a disservice for a lot of people. Like I helped a lot of people, but it was a cross section of people that were ready to go. Whereas there was probably another big group of people that I had, I, had some empathy and a little bit of caring and like, hey, I understand this is challenging. I understand that your coworkers are trying to undermine you. Here's how we're going to, you know, address that. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a revelation for me and it's an embarrassing, painful thing at this point to realize, you know, kind of the way that I conducted myself early on. But it, again, it was this evolutionary biology framework that bludgeoned me into understanding that this is a really difficult thing. Uh, if you go into a 7-Eleven, you have more flavor and palate options available to you than any Pharaoh of Egypt, czar of, of Russia. I mean, other than right up till maybe like the 1980s or something, like the world leaders, people who could have pressed buttons and annihilated life on earth, you could walk out your door, go into a convenience store and have more amazing flavor options. And people will get kind of hoity-toity. They're like, oh, that's all junk. And it's like, give me a break. A Twinkie isn't amazing. A Slim Jim isn't awesome. Like corn nuts, you know, like these yeah. are phenomenal, you know. They hit all the dopamine receptors. They hit all they the dopamine receptors. And yeah. it's like, well, I just had salty crunchy. Well, I'm going to have sweet and sour. And you just, man, you can cycle through all that stuff. And so if you really appreciate a couple of things out of evolutionary biology, the um, optimum foraging strategy and palate fatigue. Optimum foraging strategy is this notion that you try to obtain as much nutrition as possible doing as little as possible. And then the juxtaposition with that is palate fatigue. We get bored with any given food that we eat because we want to diversify nutrient intake and also we want to decrease potential toxicant load. So even if you find a lot of a particular type of food like blueberries or something, there are toxicants in that food. And so your body just says, hey, I'm, I'm done at some point. 
But if you can mix and match flavor and palate combinations, you can just almost infinitely keep eating. And there's a guy, uh, Andrew uh, Zimmer, he, he did a show, Man Versus Food. And it, it, it was ages ago I watched the show and it just stuck in my head. He did the kitchen sink ice cream sundae challenge where they literally bring like an eight pound ice cream sundae out in a kitchen sink and he starts eating it and he's motoring along and he's got to get it eaten in, you know, some amount of time. And I don't know what the reward is. It's like diabetes of the year or something. Like, I, I <laughs> like don't know what the, maybe. yeah, someday, yeah, yeah. You got diabetes and a t-shirt, yeah. you know, good for you. But he gets maybe a third of the way through and he starts bogging down. I mean, the guy turns visibly green and you could see him almost retching as he tries to take another bite. It's awful. And then he turns to the to the gal that runs this shop and he's like, hey, can I get some extra salty, extra crunchy French fries? She's like, sure. So he takes a little break, the French fries come out and he eats a French fry and takes a bite of ice cream and eats a French. And I mean, it was a massive pile of French fries. I sat there and I'm like, that's 2000 calories of French fries. <laughs> but the thing to take away, so in standard dietetics land, he it, it, adding more food should have made it harder for him and it didn't it made it it was the only way possible for him to finish that sunday was by eating more food but you've got like this cold sugary sweet experience which once his palate fatigue set in like it, it would create a, a, a vomiting response but the salty crunchy umami element of these french fries overrode that and then he could just play them back and forth and back and forth and was able to finish the whole thing. And if you really can step back and look at that and understand that, then it's like, oh, this is why the hyper palatable food environment is a bastard to deal with. And having an expectation that people have like a zillion different food options in their pantry or, you know, they go to work or family functions or whatever, and there are all these options, like that is a legitimately difficult scenario to deal with. But what, I, what I've found, the feedback that I've had is that folks that have had eating disorders or, or challenges with weight for years, they had never heard it couched in those terms, that it's actually good engineering, good evolutionary biology to be this way until now. Right. And now it's a liability. And so some people have given me really pushback on the whole notion that it's not your fault. You know, it's like, no, you need to take accountability. It, it, once you are aware then that's when, where the accountability comes in. And that's where you ask yourself, do I want to do what's necessary? Which means doing any, not your best, anything it takes to do it. If you're ready to do that, then let's jump in and do it. And if not, cool, no harm, no foul. Let's figure out other mitigating things. Can we improve your sleep? Can we get you exercising? Can we just maybe, time-restricted feeding is a really interesting way. We're not gonna limit the types, but by golly, you only eat between nine and four. That's it. So get after it. And it, it. Like those strategies work. There are some other strategies out there. And then maybe we get the person a little bit healthier and then they're like, I'm ready to do some food quality shifts, you know? So um, where it, in the beginning I had a one tool and it was a blunt tool. And now I feel like I've got a little bit of a Swiss army knife where we can, you know, do some more stuff. But it, it's that um, offloading the emotional responsibility and baggage around our evolutionary heritage once you can get to there, then it's kind of like, okay, there's still hard work to be done. There's still, 
challenging social and uh, interactions and whatnot. But, it, you know, it's ultimately it's like, okay, I'm not broken. I'm not weird. Everybody is like yeah. this. Yeah. That's such a great example. I mean, I love that ice cream and French fry example. It's I mean, so it's, it shows how, you know, people say we're not a bomb calori calorimeter. We're not right. a toaster. We are an emotional, living, breathing being. And you have to factor that into the equation. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. And, and these things didn't happen by chance. I mean, companies are doing this on purpose, right? Yeah, I, I mentioned that in my, my talk, you know, uh, uh, there's a Doritos roulette product and it, it says caution, some chips are extremely high. And what they've done is within one bag, they, you know, if we were to graph this out, there are a very few extremely hot chips, some medium chips, and then some mild chips, and it's in a power lot distribution. And so it's this kind of randomized distribution that maximizes addictiveness. And I actually wrote a letter to those folks like, hey, do, by chance, do the chips follow a power law distribution? And I got a response. The first response was, hey, by the way, the scientists in the food lab are huge fans of your work. That must have so made you feel real good. It, it was a mixed bag. <laughs> because, right? it's, because but, but the takeaway for folks to kind of understand is the processed food manufacturers are arguably more sophisticated in evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology than we are. Scary. They get it. And it's not a controversial topic. And there's not pissing matches over, hey, is 50 grams versus 30 grams really a ketogenic diet, which is where we, like our community just spins on that. These guys are like, hey, we understand evolutionary biology and we understand how to create things to be addictive and we understand optimum foraging strategy and palate fatigue and here's how we're going to bypass all that stuff. Right. So while we are infighting on these little details and nuances, these folks are creating foods that, that and you know, it's so frustrating when you have some of the like evidence-based nutrition world that they're like, these things aren't addictive and it's like, what planet do you exist on, you right. know, and who, who do you help? Oh, only like fitness competitors that, that arguably already have like a neuroses around their food because they can't not be in like contest shape all year. So great. You, you succeed with people that would succeed if they lived on the moon. Awesome. That proves a lot. Like, can you help someone who's 500 pounds get back down to a, a metabolically healthy weight? Like, show me that, you know, and you can't really do that successfully over the long haul without some understanding of this kind of evolutionary, you, you know, ancestral health orientation. Yeah, great yeah. perspective. And you brought up the issue of, of addictiveness. Can you prove it's really addictive? And Robert Lustig has done some great work right. about, about pointing out the addictiveness to food. But I always like to say, definition or not, just try and take that bag of Doritos or try and take that ice cream yeah. away from that 10-year-old and tell me if it's addictive or not. Yeah. You're in for a fight. So, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it, it, you know, while all that's going on, we're... 15 years out from a, a bankrupted economy in the U.S. due to diabetes-related issues. Right. And that's just the diabetes side of this. Parkinson is Alzheimer's, which are, are the, the next wave of metabolically driven issues. Diabetes is set to bankrupt us, but you can arguably manage to some degree a diabetic with different medications and, and whatnot. We can, we can kick the can down the road on that fire. Neurodegenerative diseases require 24-7 nursing care. Like if you want to see an absolute healthcare disaster, like you just project 20, 25 years down the road when the neurodegenerative issues that, that will emerge due to these, these uh, same metabolic underpinnings. And that's where like these evidence-based nutrition people, like I just want to throttle them because it's like, hey man, like we need to get out in front of this because the... 
you know, the big industries, the government, you, you know, kind of collusion and all that, like all of it is setting us up for a disaster. And we need a concerted front, whether you're high carb or low carb, I think we could agree that processed foods are really legitimately a challenge. And then from there, we can sort people. Okay, you're more carb sensitive, cool. Sweet potatoes and occasionally some, some junk food, but even the occasional junk food, you know, like we all probably know someone who's an alcoholic and, and they get to a spot to where they're like, I, I can have a drink but I have one. And then there are other people that they're like, I can't use like herbal tinctures that have alcohol. It's gotta be glycerin, you know? And, and we need to respect that. Like that there's just kind of a reality that, uh, and, and unlike an alcoholic, like we, uh, someone who has food addiction, they still have to eat ultimately. So how do you navigate that thing? And, and man, the ways that, uh, family and coworkers in society will try to undermine you. Like there's, active process trying to pull you back into disordered eating or, or unhealthy eating. Yeah. yeah. There's a great cartoon where there's a, like a CEO of a company or something saying, we're going to talk about health in the workplace and institute a wellness program. Oh, and by the way, there's cake in the break room right. for, to celebrate the birthdays this week. Right, you know, right. it's like, wait, wait a second. Yeah. Cognitive dissonance right there. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's all around us. Now I want to go back to something you'd mentioned. You talked about time restricted eating. So if you can't make any, you know, dramatic changes in what you eat, make changes in when you eat. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, I've heard you say some things against sort of intermittent fasting, um, that maybe that's not the right way to go. And I think it's important to sort of define the differences between time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, and what you see as the good and the bad in each one, because it's a very popular topic. Yeah. It can help a lot of people, but when done correctly, and I think that's the key, we have to realize how this fits into a healthy lifestyle. So give us a little couple minutes on that. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote my first article on intermittent fasting in 2005. It went in a kind of a sister publication to the CrossFit journal called The Performance Menu. And it was looking at some studies in mice where the mice ate one day, didn't eat one day. And it, it looked like this beautiful middle ground of being both kind of anabolic and healthy, but also they, they got the same uh, longevity expansion and health expansion that a uh, CRAN caloric restriction adequate nutrition did. I was super jazzed on this, uh, released this into the CrossFit world. And then I started seeing people just explode because you had people that if you, even though the ancestral baseline for activity was high, it's not CrossFit. It's not CrossFit five or six days a week. So you, we have to take each one of these stressors in, in this kind of allostatic load as an individual thing and then start adding them together. And if you're doing CrossFit on a consistent basis, man, you, 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 you did, you're doing everything that your body's going to adapt to. It, it, you don't need one more hormetic stressor, which is what that, that intermittent fasting is. So what I've found is that the people who tend to gravitate towards intermittent fasting are already type A, drinking a pot of coffee a day, doing six CrossFit workouts uh, a week. They do hot yoga for a, for a recovery day. They eat five grams of carbs a month. I mean, the people who do it are like this type A over the top. They're just crazy. It's not the type B personality, like a computer programmer that's mellow and not super active. And so it, it's a very context driven story. So if you have somebody that is in need of improving their metabolic health and losing weight, I think something like intermittent fasting, time restrictive feeding, which I've actually kind of leaned some of Bill Gakos's work, you know, eat, putting more calories earlier in the day and kind of running more with that earlier circadian biology. So kind of front loading the calories, 
So if we have somebody that re just refuses to modify the type of food that they're going to eat, then I think if we just put some lane lines up there, then, uh, you know, and say, okay, eat whatever you want, but only eat between this hour and this hour. It, what it does is it introduces some degree of caloric restriction. Like there may be some other metabolic benefits from eating earlier and everything, but at the end of the day, it's calorie restriction. And that ends up being a net win. And so that may be one of the stepwise things that we can use to move things down the road. On the fasting topic, like people are so geeked out on like autophagy and mTOR and all this stuff. And that's all great, but working out stimulates autophagy. Drinking coffee stimulates autophagy. Sitting in a sauna stimulates autophagy. Now, lifting weights mainly stimulates autophagy and mTOR in, in the, the affected tissues, which is, is good. That's all good there. But if we just want global autophagy stimulated, like in the brain, we can do sauna and we can drink coffee. It could even be decaf coffee, you know? And so... Uh, for like an aging population, and, and aging is kind of anything above 30 where we, we have a tendency to start losing lean muscle mass, unless the, the, if we're triaging the person, if the priority is get them to lose as much weight as possible and improve insulin sensitivity and all that, then we might lean a little heavier on intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding. But once somebody gets reasonably healthy, I'm, I'm – uh, uh, and this is a personal bias, but I would lean more towards two or three meals a day, lift weights more days than not, and rely on autophagy to come about from our exercise, drinking some coffee, doing some sauna. And then by all means, maybe once a month, once every two months, like uh, do a workout and then fast for, for, you know, three, four days each day, do a full body light a strength training session because that blunts almost all of the lean muscle mass loss. But as you get older, you know, losing two, five pounds of muscle is a really hard proposition to get it back. And so I see people doing things out of fear of mTOR and cancer and trying to goose autophagy that is almost guaranteeing sarcopenia. And I, I you know, Dying due to hip fracture and fall and frailty isn't fun and cancer isn't fun. But I think if we're not overeating and we're sleeping well and we're drinking some coffee and we're, you know, we're generally living well, it's not a guarantee you don't get cancer, but it's not a guarantee you don't get cancer doing the fasting either. It's a guess. Yeah. But I see a potential uh, uh, danger there on like the sarcopenia and muscle wasting. And those things, again, can be mitigated with, with strength training and, you know, uh, refeed cycles like, uh, uh, Walter Longo has talked about that, that the refeed is, is as important as, as the fasting piece. But I've, from my perspective, I've seen people go a little bit crazy on this and, and, uh, an over-reliance on fasting as part of the weight loss strategy, in my opinion, it's challenging because people don't learn good eating habits. Like, okay, so you fat, you went from 500 to 200. Great. You didn't eat anything during that time. What are you going to do now? And what habits did you create during that process? Or are we just going to get into a system whereby you gain 50 pounds and then you fast it off and then you gain 25 and fast that off? That, it, we also know that that's not particularly healthy because each one of these, these uh, big deltas and body weight you, it gets progressively more difficult to lose the weight. And so we're causing some metabolic damage in that process. So, you know, when we make a recommendation, I, I think there does need to be an eye towards like, okay, what could be sustainable out of this? And let's look at some, you know, secondary and tertiary things that we get out of this, like muscle mass, like athleticism, you know, like 
community because we found a sport or an activity that we enjoy. And then that keeps us, you know, in uh, those economic attractors, it keeps us moving towards something that's going to help solidify this healthy lifestyle versus like, I'm just a miserable person and I'm, I'm fasting and I can't handle being around people. So yeah. yeah there's yeah. a lot, there was a lot there in that answer. Um, yeah. that's a good perspective. One separating those who are uh, striving for longevity versus those who are striving to sort of repair their health and weight loss. Um, the, inter- the issue of communities is interesting because now there are fasting communities popping right. up as well, which right. is very interesting. But also the, the the issue of what lessons did you learn and making sure that if you're fasting, it's already part of a healthy nutrition program, basically, yeah. right? And that you're not trying to do that to make up for otherwise unhealthy eating. Right. And you brought up the terms of autophagy and mTOR. So autophagy is sort of the body's cellular recycling system, mm-hmm. cleaning up the damaged cells, preferentially uh, producing the, the healthy cells stimulated by exercise and by coffee. And I think that's interesting because that's something that's not talked about a lot because it's really talked about from a fasting perspective right. to decrease the nutrient sensors. And there's always this question of threshold, like what what minimum threshold is required to target or to trigger adequate autophagy. And I, I would venture to say we don't know the answer to that question. Right. We don't know. But but some level of fasting, whether it's 18-6, you know, eating for six hours a day, not eating for 18 hours a day, probably is starting to get some of it. Right. Resistance training, so not necessarily endurance or cardio training, but resistance training with weights is starting to get some of the autophagy. And and I think that's going to be a fascinating field of research, knowing where you get the biggest bang for your buck and right. how much do you need to do down the road. And, and I may modify my position in the next five years and be much more bullish on, on the fasting, but right now I, I uh, just thinking about looking at folks that do age well, they lift some weights, they do. They they don't overeat, um, but but uh, uh, like this kind of yoga fasting community that I've seen, just kind of looking at that, I'm like, I don't really like that vector a whole lot. Like yeah. I, I, you know, and so the, 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 uh, all of that stuff that I threw out there, um, I try to inform it as well as I can with the research. But there's a huge amount of speculation and opinion and personal bias. Like right. these are the things I like. I like coffee. I like lifting <laughs> weights. I like jujitsu. So there's a huge personal bias piece that comes in with that. But I, I do think that, again, this is where a little bit of an economics perspective comes in. Anything that we do has a risk-reward trade-off scenario to it. So when we're like autophagy, you know, okay, great, but why and under what circumstances and what are we potentially giving up on the other side? You know, just, just as a little bit of balancing all that stuff. And then that can help orient our goals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, a, a great perspective on how to see things and how it fits into a, a healthy lifestyle rather, you know, it's a tool for a healthy lifestyle, right. not an end in itself. Right. And, and speaking of that, speaking of the perspective of a tool, I wanted to talk briefly about genetics and mm-hmm. genetic testing, because that's another thing that's come up quite a bit recently. And people reacting to their genes, specifically in the low-carb community, reacting to their genes of, that say, how their body processes saturated fats, um, whether it's a, the FTO gene or the PPAR alpha or the PPAR gamma or your APOE. These are all genes that are in some way linked to how your body reacts to saturated fats. And people can say... I've got this mutation, therefore I should not go low carb, high fat because this mutation says I won't react well. I've heard you have sort of a, a broader perspective on that. So, so yeah. tell me a little bit. And, and it's kind of cool. I have that like unfavorable FTO gene that I don't, in theory, do well with saturated fats. And it mainly manifests, in, it, and I seem to be particularly responsive to dairy. So I've done these isocaloric 
stints where I'll weigh and measure the food and I'll do significant amounts of, of my fat from butter, cheese, uh, cream. And then my, my, uh, LDL cholesterol, my lipoproteins, I mainly follow the lipoproteins. Like at a baseline, my, uh, LDLP might be a thousand, 1100, somewhere around there, or it'll kind of float around that range. Two, three weeks, I can drive it up to 26, 2800, eating more, um, saturated fat, especially from, dairy products. And then I'll eat more almonds and olive oil and it plummets back down to, uh, you know, like that, that a thousand, 1100. What's perplexing for me. And I, I think it's a completely reasonable statement that an individual that has an LDL particle count of 2,600, who's, uh, in ketosis. So super modulated inflammasome, like all the inflammatory markers are just knocked way down that is a completely different person than a type two diabetic with a 2600. I have no, no qualms about that. And it's possible, like Peter Atia has made the point that LDL particles and LDL cholesterol are necessary, but not sufficient for the atherogenic process. So that's, that's a piece, but I, I see folks that are maybe a little bit brazen and cocksure where they're like, so long as your insulin levels low, you're great. You're never going to have a heart attack. And I don't, I don't know if I'm totally comfortable with that. You know, like I would do a CIMT, a, a coronary calcium scan. I might even do like the 3D imaging. And then if we come out the backside of that, like there are people that just see super high lipoprotein counts from any flavor of, of a ketogenic diet, even a, a, you know, more of a monounsaturated um, uh, iteration. And I, there's a great uh, paper that I, I just read on the biochemistry of the ketosis and ketone bodies can feed back through HMG-CoA and be a substrate for both uh, uh, lipoproteins and cholesterol. And in some people, they get that feedback loop and it, it likely drives up uh, uh, cholesterol and lipoproteins. This may be why some people who are anorexic we see exceptionally high lipoproteins and cholesterol in these people, even though they're starving to death. Like it doesn't happen to everybody, but this was one of these outliers. And so there's this, this genotype that uh, elevated ketone levels absolutely drive up lipoproteins. It's still a question as to, okay, given that everything else is good, inflammation is good, insulin is good. There's also some papers that suggest that the, the, um, main driver of, uh, coronary events of strokes is actually blood glucose deltas like your blood glucose goes high and then drops and that that inflammatory cascade that occurs is the precipitating agent. So if that's the case and we're not undergoing these atherogenic processes because of blood glucose deltas, is that still dangerous? So it, like the, the genetic testing is cool, but it's, it's like each layer of the onion we peel, I feel like it just makes it that much more complex and that many more, you know, kind of toggles that we're trying to, to vary versus kind of just looking at the clinical outcomes. Like, do you look, feel, and perform better? Do markers of disease and health look generally favorable? There are a cross-section of people that they just feel great under ketosis, but have what, you know, in that lipoprotein-specific realm doesn't, it, it looks concerning. Like, maybe their triglycerides are good and some different things are good. Blood glucose is good. So that's kind of the main one that I've looked at that is, is you know, um, certain FTO polymorphisms, maybe you would do better doing more monounsaturated fats and, you know, nuts and stuff like that, but we don't really know. Right. Now you're yeah. speaking my language about the evaluation of, of lipids and cholesterol and cardiovascular health. And I think it's true. The question is unanswered. Um, yeah. so it doesn't mean close your eyes and forget about it, but 
there's enough of a question to say you don't have to necessarily react and change your life either. We right. have to find out what's right for you right. and monitor you and follow your other parameters, like you mentioned, the carotid yeah. intima media thickness test, the calcium score, all your other laboratory markers to make sure you're progressing. The, the other interesting thing about genetics, though, that I've heard you talk about is is why did these mutations survive? Right. right. These mutations have some survival benefit, or at least did in the past, and there's a reason for them. And it could be immune modulation. Mm -hmm. It could be the way they affect lipopolysaccharides, some of the sort of toxins that come into our body. And if you think about it from that perspective, then all of a sudden maybe you don't have to react so so aggressively about trying to to work around these mutations, but rather figure out how they work for you. And I right. thought that was an interesting perspective you had. Yeah, it, it, so uh, not all of the conditions that pop, some of them are legitimately like point deletion, like, you, you know, random event, but so like celiac disease, when you look at the folks that are prone to celiac disease, they are m less likely to have septic events. They are more likely to fight off a whole host of gut pathogens because they've got a, a comparatively elevated uh, uh, kind of gut immune response, particularly in eosinophils, which are, are usually associated with a kind of vi uh, uh, parasitic infections. But the trade-off is that if gluten gets in and disrupts the, uh, you know, zonulin signaling in the gut, then that hyperactive gut environment is primed for an autoimmune condition. Right. So it, it, and it looks like celiac probably developed as we made the transition from hunter-gatherer and just living in you know, small town groups and living in proximity to animals where you get like uh, porcine to human, duck to human, like these cross, you know, reactivity with different pathogens. And this was a, a, an attempt to, you know, it, attempt, but it was an adaptation that for the people with that condition, um, it improved their survival rates. And it's interesting, there is a variety of celiac that developed in the Americas that it was basically unknown but it was an adaptation that improves gut uh, immune response, but it was only discovered, uh, you know, more recently because of these uh, kind of Latin American, Native American uh, tribes that have then been exposed to gluten, which then stimulated, like it was a, it was a non-issue until they got, a, a, you know, an environmental exposure like that. But they had a different but similar adaptation, which ultimately manifests in, in kind of celiac disease. Um, Huntington's disease, which is a DNA base pair repeat. The folks with that condition um, tend to have much higher fertility early in life. They have fewer infections. Like they, they're super bulletproof. And what's really interesting about those groups, this, this appears to be a, an old adaptation. And also we don't see what we characterize as Huntington's disease until relatively recent in history. And so a looks, degenerative neurological yeah, condition degener that's... Yeah. Devastating. Yeah. yeah, we don't really see that as, a, you know, as a feature of kind of clinical medicine, it, you know, even in like the Victorian era, like it mm. just wasn't something that we saw. Something has changed in our diet and environment that now is taking this benefit in, in youth and turning it into a liability a, a bit later in life. So, right. and I think that a number of these conditions uh, like the APO4Es, um, they're, they're clearly of benefit in a variety of ways, but then we have environmental triggers that are now making them liabilities. The, the really uh, kind of gnarly and scary thing with the APO, APO4Es is that these people tend to be more athletic, maybe a little more aggressive. Um, football players, MMA, um, boxing, you are disproportionately likely to have 
to be successful if you have that genotype really? because you, you're more athletic, you're more aggressive, like yeah. all this stuff. And you also happen to be more prone to problems due to traumatic brain injury. Right. Which even the traumatic brain injury though, like it's always probably been a thing, but we have low vitamin D levels. We have a pro-inflammatory diet. We sleep two hours less on, on average per day than what we did. So there's all these other things that get, then get packed into that. And so it, it, the numbers vary, but it, it's about 20% of what we maybe experience is hard-coded genetic expression. And the other 80% is largely epigenetics driven. You know, it's how you sleep, what you eat, whether you exercise, if you have loving relationships and all that stuff. So other than a few situations, I think that these things are shockingly malleable and really prone to, you, you know, us being able to to modify them. Yeah, I love that point because so many people think once you get your genetic test, then your die is cast and that's like your fate in life to, to live nah. out these genetics and not the case. Yeah. yeah. I know we've, we've covered a lot of topics and, and we're running long on time, but I wanted to get to the um, the work that you've done with the Reno Police Department oh, and, yeah. and the Native American communities um, where you've gone into these these sections and like revitalized sort of their health and saved money and and um, I think it's so important from a policy standpoint to see the impact you can have that, you know, you reduce the, the diabetes risk in the Reno to police department, you save them millions of dollars, um, in healthcare costs, or at least projected mm -hmm. healthcare costs. And I'm, I'm curious, one, um, a little recap of the success you had, but two, sort of the challenges you've had and, and how this can apply to, you know, the population in general of making these types of interventions to uh, save the government money, save healthcare money, and you know what it means for insurance companies and how we can sort of propagate this further so it's not just small subsets of population. Sure, yeah. So, gosh, when I first moved to Reno eight, almost nine years ago, I was introduced to some folks that were super interested in Gary Tobb's work. They had his book and my book in their clinic, which it, at that point in time, if you went into a medical clinic and they had any type of like paleo low car, it, it didn't happen. Like they burned yeah. the, it, it, these types <laughs> of books, you know, but uh, they told me that they had just wrapped up a two-year pilot study with the Reno police and Reno fire department. They found 40 people at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. This based off advanced testing like the LPIR score and LDLP and whatnot, and also an extensive health risk assessment they found these very high risk folks intervened with a low carb paleo type diet, tried to modify their sleep and exercise as best they could, which is challenging to do in a police military fire environment, but they had great success. And based off the changes in the blood work and the, the health risk assessment numbers, it's estimated the city of Reno saved $22 million with a 33 to one return on investment prorated over a 10 year period, which we're coming up on the end of that. And it actually appears to be better than what would the initial really? projection was. And so this was just a pilot study. And then the city of Reno kind of at large applied this program to their, their police and fire. And when I came on the scene, I thought, oh man, 33 to one return on investment. Like I had been making this case for why don't we see Moore's law in medicine? So like the, these electronic gizmos that we're using, they get cheaper and better every single year. Your smartphone gets cheaper and better every single year. Everywhere that you will allow markets to innovate, stuff tends to get cheaper and better. It becomes effectively a commodity. Like there's a tendency, in theory, your iPhone should be effectively free at some point, you know, because of, of uh, how efficient things are. There's reasons why that doesn't happen. But 
we see no, the, the only places that we see Moore's law occur in medicine are places that do not have third party reimbursement. So plastic surgery, LASIK is a great example because it's very quantifiable outcomes. And LASIK has, it, it's just had an inverse exponential, like it's gotten cheaper and better over time. But medicine at large has not. Like, it, you know, we pay more and more money and things are more and more expensive and it, it costs us more and more. And I thought that we would be able to take this thing and take it out to the masses and it was going to be a billion dollar company and we'd right. get massive adoption. And it's, I wouldn't say it's gone nowhere, but we've had very limited adoption. The folks that have adopted are self-insured captives. They're businesses that have put money into their own insurance pool to insure their employees or their, their workers or what have you. And these people are facing the real costs of healthcare, which are exponentially increasing. So they're very ears forward in trying to find something that is going to be effective. Many folks, uh, particularly within governmental organizations, they're in this third party shell, shell game where, it, you know, if you're the doctor, I'm the patient and somebody else is paying for it, nobody really cares what, I, I don't care what it costs. And then the insurance company doesn't want to pay you. And so you're like, well, that guy doesn't want to pay me. So I've got to increase my costs to offset that because one, one third of these things they don't even look at and they just deny outright. So I've got it. So that, you know, tomatoes would be $600 a pound if we paid for them in a third party payer kind of scenario. So we've had some success there. I'm on the advisory board for the Chickasaw Nation's Unconquered Life Program, which was interesting. What I had envisioned for the Reno project was a network of gyms associated with doctors that would provide a hub of community support, talk about sleep, food, get exercise, you know, work with local CSAs and farmers markets and, you know, do, do all this type of stuff. That's what these folks had put together. So we all love confirmation bias. So this was... It, I, it's either confirmation bias and we're both idiots or it's convergent evolution where they saw exactly the same problem. They're a self-insured captive. They're facing exponentially increasing healthcare costs. And when they sat down and thought about what do we need to do to address this, they, uh, the, the governor, governor Anatubi and his sons have collectively, like each one of them has lost over a hundred pounds on a ketogenic diet. So they're super bought in on like low carb keto ancestral health they like the CrossFit model because of the community element. And they had put a bunch of the, the pieces together, but they reached out to us for some help. So we've been doing some consulting with them. They work with Verta Health also. Oh, great. So it's, it's really cool. But the big challenges have been um, if you go to a large corporation, you deal with an HR department that's like this, this wall of you know, just stone and glass and, and they don't want to hear any of this stuff. Mm. Like uh, uh, they assume that we're trying to reduce benefits. And, and uh, so it, it's been interesting. The success we've had has been from people reaching out to us. They're proactive and they're looking for solutions. I, I will say this, and I, it's probably going to get me in all kinds of trouble, but um, when the Affordable Care Act came out, when they started trying to consolidate stuff, it made what we were trying to do 10 times harder. Yeah. It made it much more um, onerous. And I know a lot of folks are fans of kind of uh, uh, socialized medicine. I would love for all these medical entities, I would love for there to be 10 American medical associations that all compete against each other. I would like there to be so much more competition and like really a like, okay, you guys treat cancer? Yeah, we do too. Let's compete and see who wins, you know? And you take a thousand people and do best practices. And it, because the, 
current model is kind of a, a monopoly, so there's not a real motivation for innovation on any level, and in particular in this this kind of grassroots fundamental health scene. And if you are a fan of ancestral health in general, and yet you are also a fan of centralizing medical practices to like a federal governmental level, you are cutting your own throat. Like you should be advocating for health savings accounts and for more of your your medical provisions to be provided to the local level and not at, at like a federal government level, because that's where real innovation happens when we've got lots of different reaction vessels going. And I, I know I'm kind of getting off on a little of a political rant, but um, Bill Clinton, when he enacted a welfare reform, he kicked it back to the states. He provided some parameters and he's like, you guys have five to eight years to figure out what you're going to do. Go. And some of them were disasters. Some of them were great. The things that worked well got pulled up to a more federal level and then uh, uh, disseminated at a broader level. So we had 50 different reaction vessels in that case versus when we uh, enacted the Affordable Care Act, it was one. It was one. And there's things like the Singapore healthcare model where they use HSAs both for people who are wealthy and not wealthy. A health savings account is where you put money in it. It's your money. So poor people in Singapore, when they receive that financial disbursement, that is their money. But then when they go to their doctor, every procedure is listed, what the price is, what the outcomes, what the ratings are, so then they can price shop. And if that person gets a better job, that HSA goes with them. So they're not uh, creating a scenario where they're disincentivized from improving their, their personal financial scenario. If you die, that HSA is inheritable to your family. So, and I'm not saying that is it or the thing that we should do, but by God, we should have a couple of states kick the tires on some stuff like that. And we should do some other things where we can decentralize this process. And then it would also provide an opportunity if we had 50 different states, or even if we went to a, a large municipality level, is the possibility that you or me or someone we know in the keto ancestral health scene greater that we might have the ear of somebody that's in a critical position that we could get some movement in a city like Reno or like Chicago or something like that. And these effects are so powerful and so economically um, impactful. If we get one or two wins, then it's going to really shift the tide and we're going to, we're going to start seeing some stuff change. So um, again, I know it's, it's like super controversial. These are things that people get in fistfights over, but you know, when people are thinking about like medicine and healthcare, like just again, give a little bit of a thought, do we want it bigger or do we want it smaller and more local and more under our, our localized control? At least if somebody screws you over on the local level, you know who to go take a baseball bat to their knees to. But <laughs> if it's in like Capitol Hill, it's kind of like, oh, well, okay, wow. there you go, you know? So, yeah. Well, yeah. I, did, I didn't expect that type of a political <laughs> response. but, it, but that... Metaphorical, metaphorical, <laughs> of course. But, I mean, there's just yeah. more accountability and transparency. And, and something that folks oftentimes don't appreciate is even in the uh, – uh, uh, you know, places like Sweden and, and Denmark, uh, Switzerland, more of the governance happens on the municipal level than at like the centralized level. So like we've got it all backwards yeah. in that regard. Well, the, the past five minutes of, of that answer just shows your breadth of knowledge and, and expertise that you can pull in to give a different perspective for people to see things. So we talked about the science, we talked about the psychological and emotional side of it, and we talked about the politics of it and the implementation of it. So 
to sort of round out the fact of how how balanced you are, you you have your two books, the um, Paleo Solution and the Wire to Eat, and now it sounds like you've got two more in the works. Yeah. So so bring us home here. Give us a little foreshadowing of the books to come and how people can learn more about you and, and hear more about what you have to say. Sure, yeah. So I'm working on a keto-related book. We launched the Keto Masterclass a little over a year ago, and it's gone great. Like we've had tens of thousands of people go through the program. It's a very curated process that it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. It's actually a lot of kind of logic trees and, and triage. Who are you? What are your goals? What do you want to do? Okay, based off that, here's where we go. Um, if you run aground, here are the questions to ask to figure out how to go forward. And so it's been really successful. And so we're taking what we've learned from the masterclass and putting it into a book. And then I'm working on a sustainability book with Diana Rogers. Uh, the Sustainability topic is a big deal because we, I, I think we're in a scenario where we're kind of fighting an asymmetric warfare scene, but we're on the losing side. So kind of the vegan, I'll call it the vegans, um, they'll just say meat causes cancer, meat causes heart disease, meat destroys the environment. It's super compelling and it's an elevator pitch, and it sounds compelling, and it, it, it's part of a, an epistemology that is better, than, better thought out than most religions. Like, it's just super contiguous and, and uh, meme-worthy and, and sticky. And for you to sit down and unpack um, meat causes heart disease, it's a PhD dissertation. Like, it's, a, it's such an asymmetric warfare they throw that out there. It's scary. It's confusing. And then and it gets you have, the headlines. And it gets the headlines. And then for you to unpack that, it, it weeks out of your life, you got to write, you have to make slides. So we're, we're trying to put together this book where we look at the health, the environmental, and the ethical considerations of meat. And it's not just a low carb book, but it's making the case that meat and animal products are an indispensable feature of our, our food system. And that, you know, on the ethical consideration, a, a veganism is not a bloodless endeavor, you know, like right. row crops are not a benign entity. And uh, Georgia Eads talk that, that she just gave, it's really fascinating when you look at, and, and some other people are starting to look into this, Planet of the Vegans is Monsanto and, and ConAgra on steroids because right. that's all there is left. And soil destruction. And, and soil destruction, yeah. you know, and all that. And it's a crazy notion, but it may be that grasslands do really well with ruminants that co-evolved with them over millennia, you know. And and so we're at, I, I'm getting in and looking at kind of like the carbon capture um, uh uh, th this whole big term of non-equilibrium thermodynamics, it's just the inputs and outputs of a whole system and trying to give a pretty good accounting to that, but also in an accessible way, like trying to be um, uh, honor the science, but also make it accessible for kind of a lay public well, you know, you, consumption. You and Diana are a dream team to work on that book. And all I can say is do it well and hurry up because Man, we need it. We I, need it. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be... Um, intoxicated for probably a month after I get that <laughs> book done. So I, I, I can't wait to get it yeah. wrapped up too. Yeah. All right. Well, Rob Wolf, thank you so much for joining Doc, me. This you. has been an absolute pleasure. Huge honor. Thanks. Right.